open source craft. The world runs on open source, uh, so we talk to the people who shape the world. I'm Greg Pollock, and I'm here today with Lorena Mesa. She's a political analyst turned coder, currently working at Sprout Social as not really a plat software engineer. You just told me you're working on the data team now. Yeah, yeah. So I've pivoted into being a data engineer, but I am still on the platform team. Okay, still <laughs> accurate. She's a director on the Python Software Foundation, just like Trey Hunter, who we interviewed. Um, she's an, a Pi Lady Chicago co-organizer and also a Write Speak Code conference organizer. She loves to make meaning out of data, asking big questions and using her code to build models to derive meaning. Meaning. She's a part Star Wars fanatic, but mostly a Trekkie. All right. And she abides by the motto to live long and prosper. So I'm really excited to dive into your story yeah. and see how you got from having a BA in political science and international studies and a master's in Latin American and Latino studies. <laughs> so from there, five years later, dev boot camp, and now you're working here as a data scientist, data engineer. Data engineer. So how does that, how does that happen? Yeah, well, so I always like to kind of say that I think I was in a really unique place back in 2008. So my undergrad, I went to Northwestern in Evanston. And as a person in the political space, that's kind of a really unique space because, as we know, President Obama is from Chicago. And I had worked in his Senate office and was able to get into the campaign a little bit early on. What was nice. really, really exciting about that campaign, and I think that we see today with political spaces and political campaigns and projects like MoveOn.org, is that that campaign really started to think more holistically about how do we use data to answer political, uh, politically themed, motivated questions. So the, the role of data science was really instrumental at Obama for America, the first campaign. And I, as an intern working on a Latino vote team, was able to firsthand start to play with data, clean it, shape it, do fun things. And from that moment on, it really just started to whet my appetite of, oh, hey, there's this thing called code. It's more than just a person who might work at Microsoft or Google. It's, it could be someone who is out there actively ma managing and creating a, a political campaign. So for me, the passion with code started back around 2008. Awesome. Yeah. So you're working on the Obama campaign. Mm -hmm. And then what from there? Yeah. So after undergrad, I finished in 2009. I spent some time working in the local in the local space. Uh, one issue I'm really passionate about is immigration, specifically the idea of young people who are undocumented. So we may think of them as the dreamers, for example. So I did some activism, some work around that. I lived abroad in Guatemala. Wow. Did a lot of outreach and. Actually, in Guatemala, one of the cool things that we did was teaching young people how to code there, which was pretty cool. Uh, but always the theme of how how can we use code to to think a little bit more holistically about what projects we have, what initiatives we have. Eventually, I ended up a few years later going to going to grad school in an inaugural program at University of Illinois Chicago in the Latin American Latino Studies department. What's really fascinating about that master's program, it's interdisciplinary. So we had people who were coming with backgrounds of sociology, musicians. We had people who were historians. And I was the person coming in who had more of the political kind of minded agenda. So during my, during my master's program, um, I was fortunate to have a fellowship, which means I took way too many classes and I wanted to learn all the things. But UIC has a really strong, uh, really, really strong background with 
urban planning and GIS. So I actually, for my master's thesis, wanted to understand better what was the impact of the mortgage crisis on undocumented Latinos in the Chicagoland area. Sadly, that data didn't exist. I had to go out there and find it myself. So I had been taking some GIS classes. I picked up a class for R, which was a little bit deep for me because R, it's more for statisticians. And that was my first encounter of being like, documentation can be really difficult if you don't know what someone's saying. <laughs> um, but I, but I've, I made my way into back to Python, using Python to help me play and reshape data sets from, you know, Census Bureau, from other data sets that are proprietary to help me tell a story and to also then make the database that I used for GIS to do some mappings and basically to do a, a kind of a narrative around like what was the experience and also to talk more holistically about what can data tell us that we that we may not be able to see because sadly undocumented people, their voices are largely erased, right? Mm-hmm. There's There's a fear of maybe coming forward and doing things. So can we maybe use data to, to better understand some of this stuff? Mm-hmm. So in, in my master's program, again, I was coming back to this idea of how can I surface data that doesn't exist? How can I reshape the data that I'm working with to, to better tell a story uh, or, better, or, or better inform uh, decision makers about what people may think, what, what may be a political reality that's happening? So for me, the, the journey had always been I'm passionate about this thing. How can I kind of use code to help me do stuff? And it just kept, the further I got along with it, the more I realized I could do more of this. And that's when I think I really got the bug was after grad school. Wow, I think that is such a good example of where learning little bits of code as you got into college and then went to grad school allowed you in your studies, which was different, it was in the political, civic stuff, and you, you had this skill. (laughs) <laughs> that you just happen to be able to use yep. to be more successful at it. And I, that's such a good example because I think that's what we're going to see more and more exactly. is code being applied no matter what subject you go into exactly. in school. And you're going to be more successful if you know how to take data and manipulate it to make things happen, to show and communicate what it means. I, I don't remember the exact stat off the top of my head, but it's something by like 2020, we're going to be collecting per person on the planet, something like 1.3 megabytes per second, new data. So we're just, we're just swimming in this copious amounts of data. And so again, it's not even the fact that it's coding. I mean, we just have so much volume of data that mm-hmm. to actually be able to work with it, you do need to learn how to code. Mm-hmm. So the 2008 paradigm of, hey, we can apply coding to running a political campaign to, hey, I can make a policy recommendation piece and map it out and, and reshape data to kind of highlight the, the erasure of some, of some people, that, that's becoming more and more prevalent because we're just collecting everything. Mm-hmm. So that to me is really, as you were saying, a big game changer. Mm-hmm. And we got to figure out what point you became a Pythonista. <laughs> so I, I got a quote here from, is it Safia Abdallah? Oh, Safia, yes. She said, Lorraine is a cheerful Pythonista who brings a bright, vibrance, warmth, and energy to all the events that she organized. She's a fierce supporter of the causes that she cares about and a passionate local advocate. She says, thank you, Lorena, for all you do for the Python, for the Python and women in tech communities in Chicago. <laughs> so talk to me about getting involved with the community. Yeah. So Chicago, as I kind of said, has a really cool space where we had the OFA, we had civic technologists 
a really big uh, Code for America community here. The, the Code for America brigades are really active here. And we also have re- a lot of researchers. So, so for those who don't know, Code for America, oh, yes. what purpose does that group serve? Yeah, yeah. So Code for America, essentially, it's like a year-long, you can call it, I, th- I think you. it's a good way of saying it's like a fellowship. It's a year-long, and the idea is to partner with different agencies across the United States to help them build out civic tools. So it may be that you're doing a mapping project. It may be that you're doing a project that uh, educates uh, entrepreneurs about how to gain access to like local amenities in their area. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I show up at a Code to American meetup in Chicago, yeah. what do I expect? Yeah, so the, 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 the kind of successor, if you will, of that is now what we call Shy Hack Night, which is every Tuesday evening and is run by some of the people who were very active with the Code for America group here in Chicago. And essentially there's different work groups. Like there's like a there's like a cryptography group, like know, know your cryptography to keep yourself informed about like what is happening with your data, who's consuming it, like how to protect your communication. So like there's work groups? There's work groups. Oh my goodness. It's so fantastic. Um, one group that I'm, I'm involved with, Latino Techies, we have a group that goes there and we do, um, we're doing like another micro hack this Sunday where we're doing mapping, looking at where the ICE um, immigration, where the immigration raids have been happening. So trying to create tools around that because Sadly, as we've seen, there's been um, there's been a change in the ways in which immigration policy has been unfolding. And for some people who are very much in danger of perhaps having their legal status uh, reversed or uh-huh. put into a gray legal space, these kind of things are exciting. So there's also groups like that are doing work around Chicago public schools because the Chicago public schools in, 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 in Illinois, hence Chicago, they've had a real big windfall of funding. So there's all these different kind of projects and every Tuesday night, that would be something you can go to. It happens like clockwork. It's a real active community. And that's actually where I met some of my favorite Python mentors in Chicago was through this space. Mm. So I started participating there. Oh, so you started getting into the civics in the college and that led you to... And all, yeah, and then also the, just my passion for Python has always been, I can meet people who are researchers, web develop, web developers, I can meet people who just need to do a thing with it. It's always been a really fun community for me. So we also have a very active Chicago Python user group, which affectionately is called Chippy. It's a little squirrel. It's super cute. I know. I also, yeah, well, it's really cute, but it's very active. So it's every second Thursday of the month. Okay. And they always have talks about everything. So it's like, it could be like a 10-minute talk. It can be a 45-minute talk. Um, but the idea is it's a fixed space. It's got a lot of people who come. It's one of the older, more established Chicago Python groups. So between the I want to participate there and then I was participating in the Shy Hack Night, I found that there was really fun data projects to do at Shy Hack Night, which had me using some Python. And then I could go to Chicago Python user group and do all the things with Python and hear about how Python's used in other spaces. So I think it whetted my appetite because I already knew I liked it, and then I went to the user group and learned that much more. But sadly, I think what we see, and this is the truth of many, many technical spaces, is the absence of people of color and the absence of women. So the Chicago Python user group is a fantastic group, and they do a lot of outreach, but I noticed that there was not a lot of women. And something that was a little bit daunting for me was some of the talks were very, very technically advanced. And I was trying to figure out, like, where is my space in this? 
Um, mm. Where are people like me who maybe be a career changer, maybe don't know all the ins and outs of C Python? You know, folks mm-hmm. who folks who want to code, but they come at it maybe with different backgrounds and expertise, mm-hmm. which actually led me to founding the the Chicago Pi Ladies chapter over two years ago now. Pi Ladies. Yep, Pi Ladies is fantastic. <laughs> Yes, yes. So you founded that here? Yep, founded that here. And then over the course of two years, there was just a lot of people I met along the way who had helped me do more, who I thought were just such inspirational mentors to me that I wanted to give back more. So was that maybe the first like community group that you started? Was yeah, Pi Ladies was the Pi first Lady. one I started in Chicago. It takes a lot of guts. <laughs> To like start a community group, right? You're there, you like, okay, I'm gonna start this thing. Is anyone gonna show up? <laughs> that's, is it gonna that's work fair. out? Yeah, that's like, fair. What what gave you the courage to go for it? Oh goodness. I think I think that there's a lot of truth about the you know feelings of like I'm not supposed to be here, which you may know as imposter syndrome. I definitely know that when I made the career change into being a software engineer, that for me that was going to be something that was always present. So I think the thing I knew I needed, I knew I needed a community to help me continue and help me keep on doing on the things that I love to do. I think community is really instrumental for people who are underrepresented. So in the absence of not seeing one, I did want to create one, but it was, it was a little daunting. I think that there are some significant Pythonistas here in Chicago who inspired me to do it. One of which is Naomi Cedar, who is also on the, the Python Software Foundation board. At the time, she was in London. I was LinkedIn messaging like, hey, I want to talk to you about all the things. And Naomi, of her own free time, just jumped on a call with me and was answering all my questions. Basically said, hey, you can do this. Like, Let me know how I can help you. Between Naomi and then another another great, great mentor that I have here in Chicago, Tanya Schuliser, who actually wrote the book adaptation of Kenneth Reitz. Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, of which she invited me to be a technical editor, which is really cool. So mentoring, find your mentors. They're exciting people. But these two women who had been in the field for so long, when I arrived to them saying there's no place for me, they said, well, why don't you create it? Why don't you do it? And they were there all along the way, helping teach, helping helping organize in ways that they, that they knew could maybe offset some of the anxieties, if you will. But I think between that and then also just looking for other people like myself who were already asking questions about what next or how, where do I go next to find that community, I was able to find some other like-minded people like that. So to answer your question, I don't know if the fear goes away, but I think <laughs> but I think the truth is there's a lot of people out there who want to help. And it, it doesn't have to be people who are right there at your workplace. It doesn't have to be people who are even in your same city. It's it's really impressive if you actually like spend some time researching people who are active in open source, mm-hmm. how many questions they'll, a- they'll answer and how willing they are to help you along the way. Yeah, I love that. I, that makes a lot of sense. You want to create a group. You reach out to people yeah. who maybe have experience doing yeah. that and say, hey, I'm, I, I, don't fi- I don't find this here and I want to create a group and where do you think I should get started and how do you exactly. think I should get started? So exactly. it's sort of like doing the data collection. Yep. Um, and learning and finding, I like what you said about finding the mentors. Yes. And it can be peer mentors. So it can be people right there in the same expertise, experience as you, or it could be someone who, yeah, maybe they are 20, some years down the line. Mm-hmm. I was at a great panel last night with a Chicago group here and it was 
women in tech inclusive spaces. And I, there was a woman who made a very, very good comment about mentorship that I really appreciated, which she said, it's not that you're going to find that one mentor who, who satisfies all your needs. You're going to find a few and together it's going to be a composite. So I invite people to always think, you know, it's not that it has to be a match for a match, but mm-hmm. it's about, you know, start asking questions about the things you want to do. And based on that, you'll get different things from different mentors. Yeah. Yeah. I know uh, I started an accelerator in Orlando and certainly I talked to the startups about, yeah. you know, you can't listen to what everybody tells you because you get all <laughs> different things. Um, exactly. And then I explained to them the difference between a mentor and a coach. <laughs> So a mentor is somebody who will probably give you lots of advice based on their own experience, but they don't know where you are. They don't Mm -hmm. know you're, there's only one person that knows your experience that can make the right decision, right? It's you. And the people who are more coaches help you figure out what you already know Mm -hmm. and what you might already feel like is probably the right thing to do, but something's holding you back because maybe you're afraid. (laughs) And they'll help push you in the direction that you probably already know that you yes. probably should go. Yes. Um, so it's definitely good to have a variety of mentors, yeah. not just follow one. Because um, you, sometimes you end up with those people that just, I did this and this is exactly what you should do. Yeah. And that, that, that formula doesn't, it doesn't map well when you mm-hmm. try to assert your own, your own vision of what you think is correct mm-hmm. onto someone else. So yeah, empowering people to reflect on their own vision and their own expertise is the best thing I think you can do. That's great. So community stuff and then figuring out that you wanted to take the dive and go into dev boot camp. Yeah. What sort of, what sort of made the switch to go like, (laughs) okay, I'm ready to dive in and do a program to really learn yeah. coding, get maybe get a full-time job. We're here at Sprout Social yep. where you were able to get a job after Dev Bootcamp. Yep. So maybe you could walk us through like why Dev Bootcamp mm-hmm. and yeah, why Dev Bootcamp? Yeah. Well, so for me, I knew that I, I wanted something that I knew an alumni of the program. So mm-hmm. a colleague of mine from university went through Dev Bootcamp in Chicago and had great success. And she is actually in the gaming community and has done really fantastic things. So in speaking with her, I had first first-hand observations of things that worked, things to think about uh, before going into a program, and that was... Like what? Well, I think one of the things to consider is it is a very, very intense workload. Yep. So knowing how, what kind of learner you are, because as you see today, there's remote options, there's there's programs that are six months. There's programs that are a year. When I went through my program uh, over three years ago, there were less, but I knew I wanted the in-person because for me, I tend to work really well in like the pair program kind of d- dynamic. I tend to ask a lot of questions. And for me, rubber ducking off someone is really important. Uh, so I knew I wanted that. Um, and I also know that for me, the going deep into something is very much how I learn. I almost think sometimes that's something I have to be mindful of is maybe I, you know, I I can go (laughs) too deep, but I knew that I having an aggressive timeline and going quickly through things didn't, didn't scare me. I've done a lot of things where I've gone very deep and I've pivoted before I think. And I think also maybe because I had gone through grad school, 
understanding what that workload was like as since I was a teacher, I was researching, I was wearing many hats. I knew I had some capacity to, to, to kind of throttle my, how I'm learning and how much I'm learning. So I knew I had some of that, but I also spent six months before really getting into the, the local meetup communities and seeing what people were doing, learn, learning what developers actually do, going to hackathons, actually seeing what building pro- projects was like. And for me, that was really important. Combined with Girl Develop It, there was some great intro classes of like an intro to web development concepts that I sat in on. So I did a lot of like prep work, both in terms of uh, both in terms of, I would say, triaging the local dev community and by going to all these meetups and then also just reaching out to people in my network and making sure that I had a well-informed understanding of what it was like as a student because a student told me. I, wow. think, I think those kind of things are really important when you make a career change. And that's true for any field, I think. You really should be thinking very holistically about what is it I want to do you want to set yourself up for success. This is always what I tell people because I speak quite often with people who want to pivot into coding. I say, well, what do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? Have you gone and actually started building projects? If not, like what, like, you know, what things have you done first? Make sure it's right for you. Exactly, exactly. So the, the, um, the, big, the big thing that got me over the hump and made me want to go into dev boot camp was actually the, the hackathon I went to, oh, I think this is five years ago now. It was themed around building tools for disaster response, uh, folks who do disaster response. And that, well, A, spoke to me about the, like, this sounds really exciting and it's something that's high, high need and it speaks very much to where my passions lie. But then also the idea of like a hackathon to me, like what I liked when I was, when I registered for the event was it said like, Hey, I'm not a coder, but I can do things. So there was already like, uh, languages and labels that made it seem beginner friendly that made me feel like, Hey, I should go to this. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, I ended up being on the team that won and we ended up doing work for the Red Cross, uh, the Chicago chapter, um, Jim McGowan, who, who, re- who leads the, uh, who leads what may be called the Red Cross Labs. They're still kind of thinking about what open source may be titled at, at Red Cross, but he leads uh, the the, de- the developer evangelism kind of effort, if you will, in Chicago. Instrumental, really great guy. Uh, we were able to, based off of his, des- his desires of what he wanted to see as open source tools for his organization, start building out some stuff, which basically was like volunteer scheduling, volunteer management tools, because everything in the Red Cross is all volunteer run. So I think having a, a super passionate client, if you will, <laughs> seeing that I, I was building tools that dovetailed with my desires made me want to go and do the work on this project. And then before I knew it, I was spending five hours a week doing this outside of my day-to-day work, outside of going to other meetups and learning things. And I just kind of got to the point where I'm like, hey, it's time. Let's do this. Let's do yeah. So, Great. so yeah, through a combination of, of efforts. But again, I think the biggest thing is if you want to try something, you can totally try and do it. And that is going to be the best way to know if it's a good fit. So just try it out, see how it goes. Yeah. And if you do a little of that beforehand, um, you'll get a taste for it and you'll be able to evaluate if it's a good fit or not. Yeah. I, I love how well thought through all of that is. <laughs> and how, yeah, just it's just very kind of level headed, very, a scientific way of approaching it. Not, let's not just jump in. Let's make sure we can really, yeah. really enjoy it. Makes sense. If only we could do that 
If only everybody did that before they went to college. Exactly. And, and I think that's the other thing too is I very much have an app. I very much have a passion for learning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing too for some people is knowing that there's no like check mark that says I am now a coder. I think it's a whole outlook on how you think about I think it's an outlook. I think it's, you know, you are a tool builder. So what's it mean to be a tool builder if, if code is the is the set of instruments that you have available to, to be creating tools? So I think acquiring that kind of outlook is something that helped inform me to know that I can code and I can do these things. And again, it was informed by the going out there and doing it. Mm. That's right. Well, I want to go maybe go from here to well, well, actually, so you graduated. Yeah. And did they help you get this job? Well, so the way it kind of works, and I think this is kind of true for most immersion programs, is they will have some kind of like alumni network or oh, yeah. some kind of relationships with broader communities. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, that's something I always tell people to think about when you're finishing <laughs> your program. Is like, what's that? What's the exit strategy look like? Yeah. And how are you planning for success after the fact? Mm-hmm. Um, so there actually were other people who finished the program who were employed here at Sprout Social, okay. which was a great thing for me. And one of the big things I knew up front that I wanted was I really wanted mentorship. Like I knew I needed that. I knew I wanted to make sure that the team understood what I was capable of producing and how I would fit into it. So Sprout Social already had hired some um, at that point. It was two dev bootcamp graduates. Um so I knew that there was other people like me here, which was a big indicator of like why I wanted to try. But I also will say it's they use Python a lot, mm-hmm. and I really like Python. <laughs> and and also it's in the social media space, which is really really interesting to me. The again, how do how do we think about data that is that's unstructured, that's kind of messy and mm-hmm. has a lot of volume? I knew there would be interesting problems. So the reaching out, finding what other people are employed here within. Oh, goodness. I finished my program on my birthday three years ago. And within under a month, I had an offer in hand from Sprout. And I'm coming up to three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. And now you're working more towards data science. Yep, yep, yep. So when I started, I worked on the platform team. And I kind of wore a few... uh, I worked across different verticals Mm -hmm. within Sprout Social. And one of them being what we call engagement. So if you imagine you have all these... All these different places where social happens. Well, we offer like a streamlined inbox for the social media partners that we integrate with. So I worked on that for a little bit. And then I worked on a separate product that was kind of like a startup within Sprout called Bamboo. And what both of these things got me excited about was like just kind of geeking out and looking at all the data. And I was like, what, what stuff can we do with the data? Um, and we have internal hackathons and we started talking about like, well, machine learning, how do we do that here? What kind of cool features can come out of that? What kind of insights are we not surfacing? Because with social media, uh, at least in the private sector, because we are business to business, so to speak, some of the questions are, you know, what is the value of social media? How do we think about that? And so I think that's kind of where data science comes in a little bit is we may be able to surface some of the value of that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So when we started a data science team here, of which actually the data science lead is someone who's very, very active with PyData. So again, another reason I really like the idea of working on data science team here. I knew I always wanted to get back to that. I just didn't know. I I knew it was always an interest. I wasn't sure how it was going to happen, but I knew I would get there. And when we started our, our data science team, I basically reached out and said, hey, 
what does the data science team need in terms of software engineers that help them out? So, you know, data scientists are the people who do statistical modeling, but someone needs to productionalize that. Someone needs to help build out the infrastructure for, for, for the data science uh, pipeline. And so that's actually where I've pivoted and I'm now building out the discipline of what data engineering will be at Sprout. I'm the one person doing it. So it's really fun. I like it. I get to think about data, not from just like the, like, how do we get insights from it, but like, what's it mean to actually put something into production? Like, how do we think about data considerations at scale? How do we build out that infrastructure? So that's where I've been for the last year. That's amazing. I I see this pattern of you recognizing an interest (laughs) and then figuring out, oh, oh, how do I, how do I do more of this? Yeah. And then just going after it, yeah. which is, you know, I, I talk to people all the time who feel stuck in whatever job that they're in and because it doesn't follow their passion. But are they really trying to overlap their job with their passion? Like, how hard are they trying to get there? And I see that, like, you always are seeming to figure out a way <laughs> to get there. I, I think one big thing that has been really exciting, at least with code learning to code and having made the transition where this is what I do every day is it has allowed me to ask better questions. It, it, it again, back to that idea of like, it's a, it's a worldview. It's a way of thinking about, it's a way about, it's a way of thinking. Um, I think what's been really exciting is I, I think I'm better at asking questions. I think I'm better at trying to, to say, okay, what's the unknown? How do I start from here and break that down into smaller components and I'll say a lot of that practice came out of building communities, going and doing open source work, which then informed my professional day-to-day position as, an, as a software engineer mm-hmm. and now as a data engineer. Okay. So talk to me about the ethics of data collection. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I've been really, I've been really intrigued about, and I think that we're starting to see a lot more of, is with all this data that we're collecting, like, what are we actually doing with it? What's the life cycle of data? Um, what happens if you're a startup and someone buys you out and then they get, then they get your data? Like, what, what, it, what happens to that data next? So one of the things I'm, I'm really getting interested in is thinking more holistically about how do we as developers find the edge of, like, how we're collecting data? What are the ethics of things that we should be doing when we're actually collecting data? Like, what kind of auditing should we be doing about how how open it is. And then also when we actually do have data and we, we create features and we create product, how are we thinking about it from an accessibility kind of standpoint? So mm-hmm. you can, you can maybe look at some of the things we've seen with like Uber. There was some, there was that scary scandal with the mapping of the ride of shame where there was this idea that they were taking people's um, late night constant oh. trips and making public maps with it. Like, why are you doing that? I don't know. Or you can see the impact of, uh, you know, Airbnb. There was this whole campaign that popped up, like Airbnb being well black. There's also the idea of the Facebook news recommending algorithm, which did or did it not create these echo chambers that perhaps siloed people more into into their into their little buckets of what they believe is the truth. Or like political camps. Exactly, exactly. So I think as a person who helps create these tools, I really want to think critically about that and. And since I'm on a data science team, I'm trying to think about what kind of things should we have? Because while we don't have a formal policy in place of like, what is data and how do we collect it? Mm-hmm. I think I'm in a unique place to kind of maybe help evangelize that a little bit. Yeah, um, I love that idea. And you use the term 
accessibility when it comes to data. And I think what yeah. you're talking about is just, you know, how public do we make these different pieces of data, either internally yeah. or allow people to, or publicly, I guess. Well, I mean, how much do we actually need to collect? How long do we need to keep things for? Why are we collecting the things we do? I think the assumption is always, of course, when you're debugging something, you always wish you have more information. I understand. I've been there many times when I don't understand why something works. But when we start, when we start writing software that's fundamentally impacting people's day-to-day lives. So I work at a company that we do social media management. Um, we have some organizations that are nonprofits. So like, what, what are we thinking about when we use data? Are we, are we being, are we being conscientious about how we collect it, how we use it, who has access to it, et cetera? So it, it can have different implications in different spaces. But I mean, if I'm any example of it, there's more and more people coming to the table coding and there's more and more projects that re- that require coding competency that touches so many spaces of where we live and mm. and what we do that I think some of these sometimes the absence of these conversations is alarming and is something that we really should be thinking about. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, uh, 10 years, 20 years from now, someone's going to get a going to major in what is it, ethical data analysis, exactly. right? Exactly. It's like so the big companies working with big data, and they're the ones that, you know, ask the philosophical questions. When, yeah, exactly what you were saying, because, you know, people can use data in all sorts of ways. And where are you crossing the line? Yeah. When should you be deleting people's data? Mm-hmm. And I think the the one thing, I mean, just like the minimum idea of also, um, I really admire like Mozilla from the perspective that when they're doing like a bug fix, like they actually are required to say, this is why I'm requesting this data. Because I think even just like the process of like pausing, reflecting and asking why Mm -hmm. really disrupts some of these uh, these things that we may do without really critically thinking about it. So I think as a software engineer, you know, I, I arrive with my with my background and a lot of my background has been born of kind of of the political activism of being really critical of of the impacts of political campaigns, political uh, nuances, I guess. And bringing that, I think, to software has really, I think, made me ask a lot of these kind of questions, which not that people, perhaps it's not that they don't think about it. It's just, I don't even know if, I don't even know if we pause to think about it because there's not really a place to communicate about this, I guess, is where I'm kind of coming at it. So it's, it's, yeah, I guess that's always been something that's like a little interesting to me. So now that I'm really transitioning into into the data science world, that is going to be something really that I'm going to be thinking about heavily and more frequently. <laughs> it's important. Hmm. So I'm wondering, as you get more and dive more into that and try to learn more about this science that's obviously evolving, yeah. what is your strategy to dive in and learn? What is, that's a really good question. So I think the... It's really fascinating because when you talk to people about like what is data science, yeah. you know, there's you, you could probably Google it and find this really silly Venn diagram where it's like mathematical skills, programming skills, um, like re- like subject area expertise. And the idea that one person can occupy all of that yeah. is, I think, sometimes what people may envision data science to be. 
Um, but there's people who are more on the software, who have more expertise in software. And so that might be where this, where the discipline data engineering comes in. There's people who are more, um, they have stronger expertise in statistical modeling. So maybe they're the, the research data scientists. So for, for thinking about how to get there, I think what's been really interesting for me is continued education. So, so where would you go if I want to learn yeah, how to do more data definitely, science? Definitely, definitely. So, um, Kegel has a great, online repository for projects. Kaggle. Yes, K-A-G-G-L-E. So they've got like uh, lessons that are actually like in the classroom. So they have data sets already done, which is sometimes the least fun work is like cleaning and munging and making <laughs> things all. Then you can get right to work using things. So they've got um, actual competitions, almost like Top Coder. They have competitions that you can do. They have tutorials on there. That's online. That's really fun. That's exciting. There's also immersion programs that are popping up. I actually took a survey course at Metis, which is a sister program of, of Dev Bootcamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, and my instructor is a PhD out of Northwestern uh, who's, who does machine learning. And again, his perspective is the, yes, you can learn this way, but there's you can also learn by doing. So I think I'm very much in, I'm very fascinated by this idea of learning by doing because in some contexts that goes against the way of which how I, of how I used to think about learning worked. You know, I used to think, oh, hey, like you have to go and get a master's. You have to go get a PhD if you're going to do all these things. Obviously, there's combinations of learning and learning requirements based on what you do. But a lot of the going out there and doing it and finding online resources, plus understanding what's in your local community will help you do that. So yeah, I've been doing combinations of those things. That's great. So let's see, what else do we have? So Talk to us about your Python Software Foundation because you're on the <laughs> board. Yeah, the board, board of directors. Board of directors. What are you working on there? Yeah, so something that we've been really, I think the board as an entire corpus, of course, is really passionate about. But for me, the, one of the things I know that I I am really passionate about is under, is trying to get out to people what we actually do. So I, I work a lot on the blog. I've been able to... I've been able to get more folks working on the blog and I've been kind of trying to make sure we get more content into that. And then another thing is just like the broader theme of accessibility. So what's really interesting with the Python Software Foundation is we give out grant money for for projects all around the world. So for example, if you have a Python user group, your meetup fees, we will cover that. If you have a workshop you want to do, you can write a grant proposal, send that in. That's a big part of what the Python Software Foundation does. Obviously, we're evangelizing the Python um, we're evangelizing Python and trying to create a community. And also we're trying to make sure accessibility is something that is very, um, you know, that accessibility is a core concern. We want to make sure it's not just people in Europe and the United States who have access to funding, but it's people around the world. Okay. Um, so grant, um, so knowing that grants are a big part of our work, so we can use the blog to at least point people to say, here, here are projects we are doing, here are projects we've funded, here, like, you know, can we inspire you to think about ways that of, of bringing Python to your community by pointing you to the blog. So that's one way. Another way that we, that we I think, can, can understand better is how do we understand what, what the needs are in a, in a tighter geographical kind of context? Because the needs in South or Central America will be different than the needs in, per se, in Europe. Because the Europe, um, the, there's the European Python Society and they've got their working groups. They're really well run and they do a lot. They, they own their bucket of work very well. So there's not as much uh, oversight perhaps needed with the Python Software Foundation. And I think that model is actually something we're, 
we're kind of thinking about in the future is the PSF kind of more this umbrella. And then there's these uh, geographical kind of groups that are more tightly coupled with their, with their space, owning the grants, doing more of the evangelizing. And there's more kind of a group of people who offer more mentoring, perhaps assistance. So there's a lot of questions there. Um, so one thing that we're trying to think about is, okay, how do I do my first Py- How do I run my first Python conference? That's a really big question. We get a lot of people who say, I want to do this. I don't know where to start. And there's been a few attempts at creating documents around that. So one thing that the board um, that I'm kind of overseeing with the board is actually trying to make an open source document, a living, breathing document that lives on GitHub. That's a Git book that, that has some uh, defined content, but that also invites people to contribute. So we've got a skeleton up already that's on, uh, that's on Git books, uh, PyCon organizers manual. We've, already flushed out a skeleton. We've already started building out content, but we would really love more people to participate in this. So that's kind of a project I'm overseeing. And one of the things I, I really hope that that takes off is having regional kind of sections where people can contribute their name or their conference or their user group with contact information. And if you are, for, for example, maybe putting your name on there, you can say, hey, I'm comfortable if you contact me by this. And these are the topics that I feel I, I can offer expertise in. And the idea is you just send a, a, a GitHub pull request, you add your name and boom, it's there. Um, I think in some areas, it's very easy to find resources. In other areas, it's kind of difficult. I actually stumbled upon some repositories that are for communities in Central and South America. And it, a lot of it for me is doing strange research to find these spaces. So that's something that's kind of a problem, right? Like yeah. you want to make sure that the PSF is reaching the communities that needs to be reached. So kind of trying to create a living, breathing document around that. And then also the other thing that I'm really passionate about is trying to meet people in their own communities in the languages that they know. So we, we do have, while well, we do have people that are from India, from England, mm-hmm. um, from South Korea, again, there is a, there are still a lot of people who are from the United States who are English speaking. So for me, um, I've participated at, at Python Jamaica. I was able to go to Cuba and actually have some great conversations with some Pythonistas there. And next up is I'm hoping to do more public speaking about the Python Software Foundation in Spanish. So I'll be participating in Python Day in Mexico. So a lot of the, the Python Software Foundation work, I think, is, you know, how do we take all the knowledge that we know, turn it into a living, breathing document that is open source, that people can participate in, that people can translate, and then use that to empower their own local communities? Yeah, that's great. I, that's so important. That's definitely one of the more like just as important as code is building community and having yes. community events. And I definitely know, uh, you know, I was a big part of the Ruby community, and I was so impressed with how many Ruby and Rails conferences, like little ones, that would pop up yep. here and there, and they fueled so much good learning and so much good exactly. community. Um, I love the smaller conferences, and so yeah. it makes sense that if you can give people that recipe, yep. it'll only help them build their own community um, and build, you know, and spread the word of Python, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, remove as many barriers as possible, and mm. it's amazing what people can do. Okay. Well, I want to leave us with, uh, I've got one more quote. This one from <laughs> Jess Unrein from PyLadies, and she also works here now. I yes, guess. yes, Jess is my coworker as she well. She says, uh, I've known Lorena for about three years, and in that time she started communities, advocated on behalf of people who are un- unable to speak up, and also run a few marathons in her spare time. <laughs> she's encouraged me every time I doubt myself, and she's always right. 
Working with her first with Pi Ladies and now at Sprout Social has been an honor and a privilege. Oh, thanks, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and now, these are great quotes, and now I know why. It's been really inspirational to hear your story <laughs> and about Thank how you. you think of things and how you manage to not only get yourself into where you are now, but continue to find your passion and figure out ways to... <laughs> get paid to do it. Now it's in data science, but yet there's also this huge civic, oh, I have to ask. Yes. Where are you five or ten years from now? Where are because, five or ten years? Because I have to imagine the <laughs> civic civic part of you, the political civic part of you, at some point is going to start clashing with all this data science, and you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to put these two together. <laughs> well, I think, I think I kind of... One area I'm really, I'm very concerned about is the ethics of data collection. Like what, what standards are out there? What aren't we doing? What has been done? So I, I think that I would be really interested in, in documenting some of the history of that. Maybe, maybe trying to, you know, both evangelize that within my own organization, but think about how I can do that in the broader context. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is one area that I'm very, very concerned about and hope to do more work in. But I think the other thing, too, is the idea of how do we, in, in pursuing more of the data engineering and the data science, I think the five to ten year path will have me in a place where I'm hopefully at the bleeding edge of doing some really cool stuff with social media data that maybe targets better. So if I, you know, thinking about it from the perspective of Sprout Social, we have clients that are also nonprofits. What kind of, what kind of offerings can we off, can we can we better permit them for understanding analytics and reporting? What kind of things can we do to better inform people with social? That's how a lot of people receive news there today. It's just kind of a truth. I'm concerned about it from the side of like, how are we collecting data and like validating and like empowering people to do this stuff. But I'm also concerned about like how people will have tools when they're navigating and when they're navigating the onslaught of what is social media. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity to bring data science to social media. There's a lot of opportunity to talk about ethics and there's a lot of opportunity to talk about as a data scientist, as a data engineer in the social media space, what concerns should we have? What things do we flush out? I mean, you see organizations like Google kind of filtering and talking about things. Facebook is highlighting things that are like like false news, fake media, whatever buzzword you want to use for it. So I, I think that there's a lot of organizations, I mean, within tech itself, there's a lot of capacity to bring your brand of activism to it. And I hope that over the next few years, I'll be able to better cultivate what that means for me. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks. Anything else you want to say? Uh, it was fantastic chatting with you. And I look forward to seeing all of the next series of interviews that you have. Me too. It'll be fantastic. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thank you.